I'm happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. David Falkenflick. David Falkenflick is media correspondent for National Public Radio. He's a regular media analyst on television and has been featured on CNN, ABC, MSNBC, and Fox News. Prior to joining NPR, Mr. Falkenflick spent over a decade at the Baltimore Sun covering higher education, Congress, and the media. Falkenflick is based in New York and grew up in Laguna Beach, California. Please welcome Mr. David Falkenflick. On behalf of uh, Zocalo and uh, New America Foundation, I want to uh, welcome you, this incredibly packed and clearly lively crowd, uh, to this evening's uh, conversation. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce uh, three panelists, and then perhaps I'll take a moment to set the scene. Uh, I have to my immediate left Mr. Steve Call. He's the president and CEO of the New America Foundation and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Previously, uh, you may know him from his 20 years as a foreign uh, correspondent and senior editor at the Washington Post, where he ultimately served as the paper's managing editor before walking away, something very few people do voluntarily. He is also the author of six books, uh, much to our benefit, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden, from the Soviet invasion to September 10, 2001, as well as another book on the Bin Ladens. To his left, uh, somebody well-known in this area, of course, uh, Mr. Phil Bronstein. Uh, he uh, began his jour journalism career in his teens as a film reviewer, uh, though he once wrote a long review and forgot to mention the name of the movie. Uh, he's worked at uh, KQED-TV, uh, joined the San Francisco Examiner's reporter in 1980, first covering cops, then as an investigative reporter, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 1986 for his work in the Philippines in that dramatic and turbulent era there. In 1991, he was executive editor of The Examiner, and when The Chronicle and Examiner merged in November of 2000, he was named editor of The Chronicle. He's now the executive vice president and editor-at-large of both The Chronicle and The Hearst Corporation, its parent company. He, uh, as well, would like to point out he's uh, on the board of the Center for Investigative Reporting based uh, nearby here in Berkeley and survived a recent appearance on The Stephen Colbert Show. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it's also uh, a great honor to be able to introduce Mr. Michael Kinsley. Uh, he's a columnist for the Washington Post. He was editor of the New Republic. He was the founding editor of Slate Magazine, one of the first online magazines. Served as an editor of Harper's, was the opinion and editorial page editor of the Los Angeles Times, and has written columns for far too many publications to mention. Uh, we are quite, quite delighted to, to have you here to, tonight as well. Uh, we were asked here to talk a little bit about the question of beyond newspapers, and I thought I would just take a quick moment, if I might, to uh, perhaps explore a couple of the issues that, uh, that we have to think about. It seems to me as though, uh, and it's no surprise to people here in the audience, after all, you're packed here for a reason, and it's not because you're happy with the newspaper that's arriving on your lawns, should you still be paying for it. Uh, newspapers are in tough times, and they have served, of course, as the workhorses of journalism. Uh, if you think about the amount of cutting and gutting going on at American newsrooms, uh, among the people who have recently lost their jobs were someone who just last week or a couple weeks ago won a Pulitzer Prize. He lost his job a few months before. Someone who had been shot while covering a city council meeting in uh, the suburbs of St. Louis. Uh, and someone who is writing something called the Recession Diaries for the Chicago Tribune about how people who are being downsized were dealing with the economy. He was not allowed to post about his own layoff. And in fact, the newspaper removed the blog that he had been writing for so very many months from the paper's site, so you can't find it anymore. These are what we call tough times. Uh, 2008, in some ways, were 
was a milestone year as well if you think about online. It turns out, according to Pew, that a majority of people now read their news online. And this was supposed to be the great promise because news organizations thought, ah, at some point the revenue from online ads is going to match what we were able to get from the rich charges of print. But there was a drop in 2008 compared to 2007 of 48% in online ad revenue. So it doesn't look as though that's going to be sustaining. And yet at the same time, there are astonishing advances, ways in which people can get original source material, can read things. I can read about my Los Angeles Angels while living in New York at the touch of a button. That is a great day, let me, let me assure you. And there are other kinds of documents more relevant to how we live as citizens that you can also get for yourselves. Perhaps the Pentagon Papers wouldn't be published today by the Boston Globe, now crippled by debt. But it might have been posted by talkingpointsmemo.com if uh, Daniel Ellsberg had decided to slip the document to them. So it seems to me that we're not entirely in, in uh, uh, an all one way or all the other way situation. So the, some of the questions it seems to me that we're going to pose this evening will fit into two categories. What's next for serious news organizations and the values that have anim animated them? And what else is there out there and evolving that perhaps is uh, informing and stimulating us uh, in a different way than we might have expected? So I thought we'd start with uh, Steve Call, after all. He's uh, part of the institution that's uh, helped bring us together today. Uh, he wrote a piece in The New Yorker that some of you may have read uh, that appeared in January. And he said, in the foreseeable future, it seems there will be two kinds of nonprofit newspapers, those which are deliberately so and those which are reluctantly so. <laughs> Ever since I left the Washington Post in, 19, in 2005, after 20 years there that included a stint in management, and particularly since I joined the nonprofit world at the New America Foundation, I've been mulling over this idea that only by turning the Post into a nonprofit trust and raising a university-sized endowment to support the newsroom could the paper retain the vitality it requires to serve as a successful watchdog over our constitutional system. So the, one of the questions I want to start with, Steve, is if you could talk about why it is that what the Post does and what other news organizations, newspapers in particular do, is so vital that we should expect a billionaire to come forward to endow or somehow people to give money to this enterprise, which has been done largely by for-profit entities in the past. Well, I'm not sure that we should, but I, would, I think the, the really interesting sort of antecedent to that question is that rather than an article in the New Yorker, that was actually a blog post <laughs> that uh, arose from reading a proposition on the op-ed page of the New York Times one morning that philanthropy should consider newspapers as a subject for endowment. And, and that, that those thoughts uh, ended up creating a lot of uh, additional sort of reflection on my part. I think the answer to the question is um, not the preservation of newspapers. I don't think there's anything magical about a newsroom or an entity that simultaneously publishes crossword puzzles and dispatches from Baghdad. I think that that's a beautiful thing that is passing, and there's really nothing that can or should be done by policy or even necessarily by philanthropy to preserve it as such. But there's obviously embedded in that newsroom a system of independent reporting and uh, investigation and witnessing of events that matter in local uh, life, in municipal life, in state affairs, in national life, where there's perhaps more of such reporting going on, and certainly in international affairs. And it's that reporting that I think does constitute a public interest, and where there is a public interest in that reporting. And while I agree with what you said in framing that we're in a transition, and it's a period of creative destruction, and there are many creative things going on that are quite wonderful and, and uh, easy to celebrate, 
there is also a destruction of a certain kind of civil service modeled independent reporting on private and public power that is vanishing at a much faster rate than it's being replaced. And that's what interests me. And I think that in the sort of civic marketplace, there's a marketplace function in philanthropy just as there is in um, the economic system. And for a long time, philanthropy had no reason to consider preserving these, this kind of reporting and the values associated with it because it was taken care of by private interests. Now that's no longer the case. And so my, my instinct was to argue, let's change the conversation about what philanthropy might want to be interested in. Now, Mike Kinsley uh, wrote uh, from a slightly different perspective uh, in the Washington Post uh, last month. And he's, he started his column provocatively, as he tends to start his columns. Uh, few industries in this country have been as coddled as newspapers. Uh, and then he said, let us suppose, and pick up again, that technology is on the verge of removing some traditionally vital organs of the body politic. What should we do? And then he says, how about nothing? Capitalism is a perennial gale of creative destruction. Industries come and go. A newspaper industry that was a ward of the state or of high-minded foundations would be sadly compromised. He says, but will there be a Baghdad bureau? Will there be the resources to expose the future Watergate? Will you be able to get your news straight not in ideological fog of blogs? Yes, why not, if there are customers for these things? Well, I would ask Mike, why do you think the market will take care of perhaps our need to understand what, will go, uh, what goes on often in our name and on our taxpayers and you know, with the blood of our fellow citizens uh, in the absence of some sort of larger cafeteria subsidy that newspapers have provided in the past? Well, I don't know what you mean when you say newspapers have provided a subsidy. They managed to make a profit um, doing the things which you want to see done, and now possibly they won't for various reasons. But, I mean, let's, let's, let's pull back for a second. Suppose 20 years ago you had been told that, that, in, the, that in the next 20 years it would become possible to distribute newspapers for free, not have to pay anything for paper, not have to pay anything for ink, and, uh, and would your reaction be, boy, that's going to be terrible. <laughs> I don't think so. I, you know, that, that, so you have to sort of scratch your head. Why is this such a disaster when, if you just look at the, 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 the simple facts, it sounds like a pretty good thing. And one reason, of course, is that newspapers blew it in many ways. They should have been able to keep the classifieds. They had the brand, which was much more important than the technology, which Craigslist had, which was relatively trivial. Um, and um, there are other examples. You know, you, with hindsight, which is cheap, you can see how they would have would have done it. And so maybe they deserve their fate. But what about uh, people who, you know, what do readers deserve in, or consumers of news deserve well, in terms of knowledge? Well, uh, we, we, we were discussing this over dinner and the analogy to parks came up. There are a lot of things which are public goods or which are funded by philanthropy. It doesn't seem to me that, that, that journalism is the kind of thing that ought to be subsidized. If there aren't enough people who are interested in it, in good journalism, 
I don't see why they should be forced to subsidize it either directly or indirectly through their tax dollars. But in fact, that's not a problem. As everyone points out at about this stage in these discussions, more people are reading than ever. And, and more people are reading news than ever before. And, and so I think this period of transition that, that, that we've been talking about is, is going to be limited and we will come out with, with some system, some combination of people paying and then, then supplying their eyeballs for advertisers. And this will seem like a, like a, like a large fuss over a medium-sized problem. Phil, you've been uh, able to step back a little bit from running a newspaper in quite the same in intensity and responsibility, perhaps, than you had for many years, at the, uh, first at the Examiner, then the Chronicle. Uh, how do you see it now, now that you've had a little time, perhaps, uh, think perhaps a, a little bit broader range about, uh, about that challenge and about how uh, uh, the function of news and informing citizens is being provided? Well, it still feels a little bit like wind shear. I mean, I think that one can argue endlessly that we could have seen this coming and should have seen this coming because uh, I don't necessarily agree with Michael about the technology, although maybe I misunderstood what he was saying, but I think the technology was vitally important. And I think we missed it. Um, we brought Craig Newmark into the Chronicle six or seven years ago to talk with uh, then folks who ran the website and saying, hey, look, you know, maybe there's some kind of relationship and partnership we can have here. And the view then on the website was, the hell with it, we're just going to kick his rear end. Because after all, we're the Chronicle, and how could we not? And he's some little guy over there in Coal Valley doing his thing. So I, I, think, I think that we just didn't recognize the, the technology. But, I, you know, I mean, it's hard to talk in abstract, because I look out in this audience tonight, and I see people who have been colleagues of mine for you know, 25 years and more who have been vastly affected by this. So, so with all due respect to Michael, I don't think it's a, it's not a minor thing because they not only represent, you know, human beings, but they also represent people with an enormous amount of talent. And that talent right now in this transition period that Michael describes well is being, is not being used <clears throat> particularly well or at all. And so my I mean, I see all these things going on in San Francisco, and this is really, San Francisco and the Bay Area is really a sort of a hotbed of experimentation, um, not unusual for this area. But, you know, you have these, not only these local news websites that are popping up all over the place, including some from people who came from the Chronicle or newspapers here, but you have something called Spot Us here, which is essentially, you know, newspaper pitches or story pitches are put up for bid the public bids on them, there's a limit on the, on the amount you can bid so a single person can't get an agenda in there, presumably. And then when they get to the bid level, like $300, then they find a journalist to do the story. Now, you know, that's fraught with danger just like a lot of other things. Uh, they also have something called I Am San Francisco, which is like YouTube, you, but it's an opportunity for video journalists to come and kind of do the same thing, which is pitch their stories and get support, only they actually get paid. So I think that there are all sorts of things going on and we're trying to involve ourselves in a kind of what we now call pro-am relationship. And I think that this transition period that Michael talked about, <clears throat> it's gonna be vital for those of us who still 
are in traditional journalism, mainstream media, to try and understand what that pro-am relationship is. What should our relationship be? I think citizen journalism as a concept hasn't worked and may not work. But that doesn't mean that you don't have citizens out there every day, people out there every day with their phones, with cameras, and eyewitness to news events. So the question is, how do you interact with those people in a way that may support journalism? Not a paper product, which I, I think I agree, I think with probably a lot of people here, that's going away. But with the news part of newspaper, how do you support that? And one of the ways you do it, I think, is by developing a relationship with all the people out there who are experimenting and all the citizens who want to be a part of it. I mean, it's not just that more and more people are consuming news. More and more people are participating. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean they're, you know, tackling police officers in the performance of their duty. I mean they are there as witnesses. And I think that's a valuable thing that we have overlooked as an institution for a long time. And now we have the opportunity, and to some extent we have the technological tools. We just have to be willing to use them. Steve, what do you think? I mean, you're somebody who uh, embodies in some ways some of the most rigorous, uh, intensely textured reporting and writing that you can imagine. Uh, when you think of the, uh, the opportunities afforded by the pro-am, presumably professional amateur uh, interaction uh, and knitting together, is that uh, a model that, that interests you? Do you as a, as a reader, as a citizen, want to get more of that? You know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm agnostic about the uh, efforts that have been made so far, I think there are some sources of promise and some sources of, dis of discouragement in that. But I'm a big believer in innovation and in the march of innovation, and I believe that the generation of journalists coming of age now as young professionals has the potential to create better journalism than anyone has before. And so I'm not, um, I'm not at all uh, sort of worried about where that pattern of innovation may eventually lead, and I'm quite sure it will produce wonderful things that we can't even imagine now within 15 or 20 years. But what worries me is that there is a body of journalistic practice that built up by accident because of the quasi-monopolistic business model, mostly at newspapers, but also in licensed broadcasting, <laughs> that is being very rapidly destroyed, destroyed more quickly than it can be replaced. And that, to me, constitutes something of public interest. That doesn't, that's not the same thing as talking about newspapers. I'm talking about journalism rather than newspapers. It happens that the journalism that I'm talking about has been disproportionately located in newspapers for the last 30 or 40 years, but that is actually immaterial to the question of what should be done or what should be considered important. So um, I, I, and I, I just make one other point. We were talking at dinner about, you know, if this is the transition from the horse and buggy to the automobile, I don't think the subject is the horse and buggy. I think the subject, and I don't think the subject is the automobile. I think the subject is transportation policy. <laughs> so, you know, what is it in this transition that belongs in the public square for public discourse, for identifying where the common interests lie? And then having identified those, and we may or may not agree what, about what they are, if there is no foreseeable prospect that those are going to be served by the private market for now, then what do we do to try to preserve them to the greatest possible extent? So there have been some examples, obviously, in journalism circles talked about, perhaps not as much uh, outside, but uh, you know, if you think of uh, Voice of San Diego, it's uh, sort of a group of a dozen or so journalists who went from the major paper in town, which was in busily shrinking itself and appears this week to be doing even more so. Uh, Min Post uh, similarly in, in Minneapolis, which is one of the 
metro regions, it seems to have a sort of surfeit of news organizations by comparison, uh, but a not-for-profit that relies on contributions as well as advertising online only, some, uh, St. Louis Beacon, some others as well. What do you guys think of these uh, rather small, compressed, but uh, focused organizations that have popped up in, in metro areas? Well, who's going to say anything bad about them? Well, does it, does it, <laughs> how well does it do serving, serving those citizens in this, particularly in the absence of other serious news organizations? Well, I mean, I guess the case against them would be that they don't have the professional standards that guarantee a level of accuracy. Um, but, I, you know, my, my experience at Slate certainly is that there's far, in some ways at least, there's far more pressure for accuracy on the internet than there is in, in, uh, in, in traditional uh, uh, media. Because if you make that mistake, someone's going to spot it and, gonna, and if you don't acknowledge it and correct it, they will, they will embarrass you on, on, some, on some other website. And, and um, I think that is a different, you know, it's, it's like all this stuff, it's all different. What did I say? <laughs> um, it's a traditionalist. Postcard. Yeah. The, um, there are, the, it's different from the traditional ways in which accuracy has been guaranteed. And, and it will take getting used to. And, you know, Steve does, not want, I'm, Steve does not want to be portrayed as a Luddite here. And I don't want to be portrayed as, as indifferent to, uh, to traditional standards to my colleagues in the industry, um, and, and so on. But, you know, things are changing. And by and large, I think, and everyone on this panel seems to think that it's good. I think that, you know, what you, the key phrase of your question was absence of professionals. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what, what level are we willing to adhere to in the interim? And, and the, Sad fact, but I think maybe ultimately a good thing for some of these enterprises and for journalism is that there are a lot more professionals available. I mean, that's the sad <laughs> fact is they're available for, uh, for sad reasons and unfortunate reasons. But the ability, I mean, at the Center for Investigative Reporting, we have some projects underway that we actually got funded. And the, the, not only the number, but the quality professional quality of the journalists who've, who've called us and talked to us and talked to Rob Rosenthal, our executive director, has been astonishing. Not necessarily so much when you think about really the bigger picture and what's been going on, but they have the ability to contribute. So then I think we very quickly get to the question of how are you going to pay for it? Can you pay them? Can you pay them a living wage? If you can't pay them a living wage, can they afford to do this? Because, you know, I found, not to switch subjects here, but in the issue of what can you support financially, which is kind of an important issue, and one of the things that got us here to begin with, there's a vast chasm between charging for content and people paying for content. You can charge all you want, but if people don't pay for it, it doesn't really help you. And then there's another vast chasm between paying for, people paying for content and making a business that works. I think to your original question, that one of the values of these new operations that are springing up is the cost structure. That the cost structure, I mean, I remember uh, Steve's colleague, Len Downey, was here not too long ago, was scolding the New York Times for having a staff of, what, 900 or 1,000 or 1,100 
journalists. Well, I mean, the Post had a staff of 800. 800. Uh, the Chronicle, when the Chronicle Examiner merged, we had a staff of 575, which for a San Francisco newspaper was huge. I think the Los Angeles Times had about 800 in the editorial department alone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, were and they were complaining at yeah. that point that they didn't have enough people. So I think we were really living, you know, in this bubble, our own, our own kind of bubble. So I think that one of the things that these kind of insurgent organizations are doing uh, might be to prove that there's a a different cost structure that's easier to pay for, I hope. So how do you feel, uh, former editors all, how do you feel about the notion of, of, of charging the readers for content that people have been giving away online? Well, you know, you have to understand that, that, and, that it's not as if readers ever paid for the content. You know, the readers paid basically for the paper, and the content was funded by advertising. So the idea that get you know it might work sure if you could get readers to pay, uh, uh, but it's not as if that's the obvious solution because if it if it worked it's never it's never worked before. Uh, worked at, maybe for the Wall Street Journal for certain yeah. kinds of financial yeah. information that Steve was talking about a bit earlier. Sure. Yeah, you you do worry that in the end in the transition, especially when you break down the sort of uh, accidental quasi-monopolistic business model that protected all this cost structure before, that one of the things that will immediately happen when all the barriers to entry collapse is that the information that will be funded most aggressively is that which informs prices in the marketplace. So, of course, we're going to be, we're, we're going to pay for information if it, if it allows you to trade successfully on stocks or commodities or, or bonds, but are we going to pay for information that was also in these protected newsrooms uh, that was about local zoning boards and school boards and so forth. And I think it's obvious that no, you won't pay equally for those two kinds of information. And that takes me back to this question of the policy questions in the public square. If you're not satisfied with that fact, then what are your options for doing something about it? I'm sorry, Phil. No, I just, I wanted to point out a sort of an interesting irony that, I mean, Steve was at the hearings yesterday. No, were you there? Mm. In Washington, and I mean, I, I, I didn't find much uh, present company accepted of use of <laughs> with those hearings because I think the premise was off, which is government should provide an exemption. The fact is, is that um, really, I think traditional newspapers that are looking for quote exemptions are just looking to be treated as the government has historically treated many other businesses. Um, you know, Westinghouse comes to mind. Um, there's, there's clearly a different standard there, maybe there ought to be, but there was uh, this, of course, Arianna Huffington testified and, and made quite a splash, and then uh, there was complaint that this notion, the guy from The Wire, I can't remember his name at the David moment. David Simon. David, yeah. Basically was saying, you know, these blogs, they're, they're kind of pointless and useless and they don't provide valuable information, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said they don't cover Baltimore City Hall. Um, and then uh, the guy who just took over Valleywag here in the Bay Area came up with a list of all the blogs that actually do cover city halls around the Bay Area. And yes, uh, they're not necessarily professional journalists who went to J school, neither did I, um, but they're people who we used to refer to as gadflies, who are always at these meetings and have a great dedication to reporting on what's going on there, albeit perhaps with a, a bit of a slant. And then Josh Wolf, who you may recall, 
was a guy who was fighting very hard here locally to keep uh, from handing over his raw footage to the police department and was trying very hard to get established as a journalist, wrote on his, uh, he's now working, I think, for a Southern California publication, that no, he didn't think bloggers could really do that, which was an unusual twist of events, uh, but it just shows you sort of how quickly things tend to be moving, although sometimes in a circle. We've got... Yeah, I, I'd like to ask Steve a question. Suppose there was, well, say there was Watergate or the story of, of the torture in, 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 of, of, of terrorist suspects, some big story. Now, you're, you're one of the very best where you were until you gave it all up for the foundation. <laughs> um, investigative reporters around. Is it more likely or less likely now than before all these things happened that a story like that will, will be uncovered? Well, I know the reporters who brought both of those forward. I mean, Dana Priest recently on secret prisons, and of course, you know, Bob is a colleague of yours and mine for a long time. And if you look into the narratives of how those stories came forward and became episodes in American constitutional life, I think the process by which those stories finally saw print is inseparable from the professional experience and, and professional setting of the journalists who eventually were able to get that into print. And also, certainly in the case of Watergate, inseparable from the imperviousness of the Washington Post business model to even direct pressure by the federal governments and threats of IRS audits. Because, and again, that's an accident of the quasi-monopolistic sort of status that these business models enjoyed at the time. But it was, it's a not incidental consequence of that run that newspapers enjoyed that basically the owners correctly believed that they could withstand any pressure because well, their business model was very broadly distributed. Well, that, that's, that's one model, and that's the traditional model, but, but Phil's been telling us about various new things that have come along because of the Internet, which, uh, and I, you just have to weigh, weigh the... I don't rule out the possibility that you used the example, I think, of, of someone who... I mean, I'm, so that's the case of the, about the historical examples that you asked about, but could other equally important episodes of uh, you know, constitutional disclosure through journalism, constitutionally relevant disclosure through journalism occur through these new methods? I hope so. And, you, and don't you think that, that a bunch of bloggers sitting around in their underwear uh, reporting uh, on stories are going to be at least as resistant to uh, uh, government <laughs> pressures? As, as a major corporation with shareholders it has <laughs> obligations to? We'll see, we'll, see how, we'll see where their courage is when they're tested, I guess. But, uh, uh, they, you know, I mean, we can, think, we can well, think of one example if you think of Talking Point Memo uh, taking out after, uh, sort of pulling together threads from a bunch of different uh, communities where they saw U.S. attorneys being pressured or forced out across the country, and they really threw a ton of documents out to the public and said, is there stuff here you can point to? And lawyers who are readers really helped them right. surround that. And it seems to me as though if that had been a time when the Pulitzer Committee had been considering, you know, online-only uh, entries, that that would have been a very, very worthy one at that time. Right. And I think swarming is potentially an analogy to the profits yeah. of the... Because but, but it does, distributes it, the risk 
in a way that, that makes the risk easier so to defend. So if the present, I mean, to sort of turn Michael's question a little bit and, and remove it from your alma mater, if the present day New York Times, you were saying it was in part the financial security of these operations that allowed them to resist pressure from the government. So if the current present day New York Times, which is in a world of trouble and is predicted to be sold at some point in the near future and has $600 million, $600 million in the hole with their uh, pension program and just sold some percentage of themselves to Carlos Slim, were to get that kind of pressure today in a different, very different economic circumstance, would they stand up? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But you know, you know, Phil, as an investigative reporter, that the circumstances that produce, that, that tends to produce those kinds of breakthroughs are also at least as much, if not more, located in the sort of social contract that develops between the source and the, and the publishing entity over a long period of time. So for, what, for whatever reason, the, it's the reporter who does, you don't just answer the phone and get these, get these kinds of uh, uh, events. So it's, it's through persistent professional activity that an atmosphere is developed of trust or of self-interest or you know all the usual complications of motivation of sources in these settings in which this very uh, risky, dangerous information passes down the pipe to an entity that is judged by the source to be able to handle it. Now, my uh, hope is that these new entities uh, will do the kind of reporting that will put them in the position to have to manage that problem and to think about the risks and their willingness to go to jail, their willingness to lose the whole business, their willingness to lose uh, you know, everything. But it's not so much their strength at that moment of testing, it's will they actually be funded and operated in a way that will put them in a position to ever have to be tested that way. Well, it's interesting because the, to raise Josh Wolf again, I mean, Josh Wolf, it was an interesting circumstance because he was fighting the federal government at the same time we were fighting the federal government in Balco. And of course, our stories, I mean, one could argue it was just about steroids, but in fact, it was a story that had huge resonance and affected things from professional sports to amateur sports in schools. And we didn't, at the time, we were a little uncomfortable with the idea that both these things were going on at once because you know, after all, we were that kind of institution you're talking about. All the checks and balances, and Josh was this kind of video blogger. But the reality is, is that he also was willing to go to jail. Doesn't answer the question, your question about whether they're willing to pay for it. I mean, it seems to me the largest existing institution that supports the largest number of reporters right now outside of a newspaper, it might be Politico, right? Outside of, well, I would imagine it competes with non-New York Times, Washington Post, New York Times newsrooms are probably still much, much bigger um, in terms of fielded forces on national politics. But they're, they're now CQ, comparable. So. Yeah. Right, but Politico is not profitable, right? And so, I mean, I think we can look at Politico as one example to see if this model is going to work. That is to say, supporting traditional journalism outside of a newspaper setting. It, it does raise the question for me, if you're talking about these things as some of these classic traditional news organizations, particularly the big newspapers, contract, you know, they aren't necessarily, you know, you're seeing a, a lot of gutting of the American foreign news corps, you know, abroad. You're seeing a lot of people being withdrawn even from fairly near suburbs of a lot of newspapers. Uh, what are, 
to what extent is there a greater expectation upon readers and upon citizens that they are going to have to track down for themselves what the heck is going on uh, in the absence of these larger institutions, you know, bringing it to their door? Um, I don't think you, yeah, I don't think that uh, you, you should expect citizens to have to do that and because they won't. And so, and, but I'm not alarmed about it because some site will come up, you know, which will curate is the current uh, term. You don't say aggregate anymore, you know, but some, some, someone will set themselves up as the curator of news in San Francisco. And if the San Francisco Chronicle disappears, God forbid, and, and you have to get your news from 30 or 40 different sites, someone will put herself or himself in the business of sorting through those sites at four in the morning, so by the time you get up, you know, they will, they will be um, sorted out for you. Well, I mean, it, I, there are terrific aggregators, uh, you know, in Los Angeles, which is closer to my uh, home, you know, LA Observed does a tremendous job right. of curating and pulling together things, not just from the LA Times, but disparate, but at the same point, at a certain point, as you read, particularly on his site, of all the news organizations in Los Angeles that have been diminished, including a lot of the specialty media outlets, you wonder what is there going to be left to aggregate? Well, and this, this was the, the, one of the funny moments at the hearing yesterday was when David Simon said to the uh, senators, he was talking about the loss of this kind of reporting, and he said, you know, between the loss of this reporting and the stimulus legislation, the next five years are going to be the halcyon days of public corruption. I envy all of you, Senators. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so, but, but what was interesting was that later... Uh, uh, I, I totally misunderstood that story when you told it the last time. I thought he envied the investigative reporters. No, he envied the Senators. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, no, no, he envied the Senators. Well, public officials generally. Yeah. And so, the, so the one way to measure this question of where the public interest lies was in the comment that then followed at the hearing from uh, Claire, Claire McCaskill from Missouri, who said, look, I'm a former prosecutor. And of course, in, in effect, she said, um, I never made a mistake in public office. I never had a problem that warranted scrutiny. But uh, there were two or three reporters who had been covering my shop for a long time, and they scared me. And everything I did, I did more or less with them in mind. <laughs> uh, and so if citizens or bloggers or aggregators or the whole portfolio of inevitable new forces in journalism are going to perform that function, they ultimately have to reside in the head of the public official as a source of deterrence. And I'm not sure I see how that happens from here. I'm, I hope we'll get, I'm sure we'll get there eventually, but I'm worried about how long it will take and what happens in the interim. Well, well as, a former, as a former newspaper man, let me just say, uh, to strike fear in the heart of somebody you write about is a, is a very wonderful thing indeed. Uh, I, I do want to say this uh, wraps up uh, the panel discussion portion, so I want to thank all of you for coming out. I want to thank uh, the New America Foundation and Sokolo Public Square, and we will be taking, uh, throwing the floor open and be taking some questions as well for folks. Thank you, Mr. Falkenflick. My name is Michael. I, um, I understand that uh, it's generalist publications that have suffered the most with the market contraction, and specialist publications in this country have done better. It seems like in Europe, much more of the print media has been um, accused of being partisan. But I would suggest that just as specialist publications here or European media seem to be more engaged in providing analysis 
uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily a slant or bias, but providing more analysis, the New York Times calls itself, you know, printing everything, all the news it's fit to print, the journal of record. So American papers seem to be more journals of record, and European papers, as far as I see, reading French and Spanish and English, give more analysis. And I think that the, the growth of blogs are publications that provide more analysis. Um, um, I'm not saying that people need to have stuff spelled out for them, but I question, uh, you know, publications in this country that are dedicated to this journalistic credo of non-bias, presenting both sides, and so often falling into breaking down every issue into a dichotomy, false dichotomies. So, uh, uh, so Steve, do you want to uh, address, maybe wade in a little bit or talk about uh, like what it would be to be a more of a... Well, I was going to say I Mike think you have a very good point. Uh, but the uh, European papers aren't accused of being biased. They, they quite frankly are in general. <laughs> and, and they don't, re and I think, you know, that this is, this is a different business model as, 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 as we say. And uh, there's, nothing, no, there's nothing wrong with it. And I think it could be a model for how American papers could evolve. Clearly, there is something about communication online which favors opinion, to say the least, and, um, and you know, in searching for some, where, some place on the spectrum between the New York Times and the Washington Post rigid objectivity and the, um, the rampant bias of, of an inaccuracy of some blogs, you know, I think the European papers could be a model. Well, and to me, it's more honest. I mean, I've spent my whole life in opinion journalism. And I think, in a way, that's you don't have to pretend you don't have an opinion. Because it seems to me that any intelligent person, and reporters are intelligent people, who, who spends their time looking into some situation is going to develop an opinion about it. And American papers sort of pretend that doesn't exist or insist that you can sort of ignore it, whereas the European papers say, no, you read the story, and you see where we're coming from, and then you decide whether to believe it or not. Well, you know, I think it's important to recognize that this practice, the pursuit of objectivity, however you want to reductively describe it, is an accident. It's a cultural artifact as strange as opera. I mean, it's a product of this business. It's, it's a product of this business model and the time in which this business model emerged in the post-war period. Several fact. I mean, a lot of factors came together. One was, if you have a, a quasi-monopolistic business in which your market power depends on the extent of penetration of a of a metropolitan market, then you have a built-in incentive to develop content that is inclusive. So on the one hand, on the other hand, everybody in. That was one factor. In the post-war period, you had the rise of the sort of reification of the scientific method in social sciences. Everything is evidence-based. Everything is peer-reviewed. Everything is edited. Now, I value the scientific method, and it, it migrated into journalism at the same time that uh, there was also a sort of cult of professions that grew up. And a lot of people justifiably criticize this claim on behalf of the journalistic profession. And we might equally criticize such claims on behalf of medicine or law or accounting. Of course, they're imperfect, but it's the pursuit of standards and the, and the, the uh, insistence on scientific method and peer review that 
is what is the accident of this business model. So if it goes away, the question is, is something of public interest lost? Because I think it, it may well go away, and whether a European or other model replaces it is, um, you know, sort of not, not the public question. I think the problem with what Michael referred to as the rigid objectivity, and we'll talk about the New York Times since no one from the Times is here that I'm aware of, <laughs> is if the, I mean, the reality is, is the public doesn't see you as objective, then how objective are you? And, I mean, if you've ever been written about, there's one thing you know, and that's they never get it right. <laughs> You know, life is complicated. When I was covering the Philippines, uh, most of the reporters wanted to have it be a Walt Disney tale of this horrible dictator, evil, fascist, murdering, torturing dictator, and this pious, humble housewife. Well, of course, it wasn't like that at all. She didn't care at all about the country's poor, and he was a much more interesting, complicated guy than, you know, the cartoons wanted to make him. So uh, objectivity really is sort of is, is an elusive quality, I think, even for the New York Times. But the, the bigger problem is, is if, you're, if your readers don't feel you're objective, then you, you need to think about what objectivity really is. Is it really just the fairness doctrine applied you know, in print, or is it something greater than that? And I, I, I've never been able to quite uh, get my hands around that. The shoes, the, the shoes were true, right? <laughs> yes. You know, what was true, okay, here's what was true about the shoes. He had as many as she did. <laughs> Next one. Gentlemen, Next we question. have a question to your far left here. Hi, my name is Stephen Robert Morse. I run my2census.com, which is the nonprofit, nonpartisan watchdog blog of the 2010 census, very niche. Um, and I wake up at four in the morning and aggregate news from all over the country. I sit in my underwear when I do my work. And I know from my analytics that You're I... You're the future. I, I, I dressed up for this. And uh, I, I bring uh, fear into the hearts of every Census Bureau employee from coast to coast every single day. And I know that from my analytics. Um, so my question is, a few, a few names we haven't really heard are CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. And we're, uh, given that they had such high ratings during the last election cycle, where do you think that they fit in into this whole new media game? And where uh, have newspapers, in terms of making their own video blogs and their own slideshows and multimedia presentations, where have newspapers succeeded and failed? And what do you see uh, as the future of the whole uh, online game? Oh, I think that's a pretty broad question, right? Uh, why, don't, why don't you? deal with that as your, your experience as an editor, Phil, and uh, maybe we'll have one person answer each question. All right, well, let me, let me try and tackle the question about uh, newspapers and online and their online entities. I mean, I think we've handled it very badly. I think there was a, a tendency to want to shovel the content of the newspaper onto the website and figure that was it. And, you know, our content was so great, after all, people were paying us at least 25 cents for it every day, <laughs> that how could an online community not value it as well. And it turned out that we were ignoring all the, even you mentioned video, audio, podcasts, all of these things. I mean, for most newspapers, we came way late to the party on comments because the idea, you know, the concern in the newsroom was, well, you know, there's a bunch of idiots out there. And, and they're going to, and look at, when we when, look at the places where there are commenters, they're flamers, and they're virtually obscene, and, you know, what are we going to get out of that? And what we didn't get out of that when we didn't have comments was a lot of really good material. 
Just very briefly, we have a, a guy named Tom Steenstra, who's an outdoor writer, and he had a blog about a guy who fell off Half Dome and died. And he put, it was a blog, and he had 500, 800 comments on that blog, and within the comments were people who claimed to have been eyewitnesses to his falling, both above him and below him on Half Dome. And you had people who were expressing, I think very articulately, what the problems were and why it was unsafe. People were going up in their sandals and you know, they needed another cable in addition to the two cables to make it safe. And you needed a ranger on, on uh, duty there to make sure people did what they were supposed to do. So all you know, within a blog and its comments, you had the ability to pursue that story further. I mean, you had to determine whether people were actually there or not. But all this possibility, and we were not really interested in that. And so I think now, very late in the day, newspapers are going, oh, yeah, all that digital stuff isn't just, you know, some guy in his underwear. It's uh, inventing code. It's really something that may be a useful tool for reporting, whether it's reporting at a newspaper or a radio station, a TV station, or some and, and, of course, you can forget about all that stuff about making sure they were really there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we have a question all the way to the right. Please. Uh, hi, my name is Josh Green. Um, I've been a copy editor at the San Francisco Chronicle for the last eight and a half years until a few weeks ago. Um, and I wanted to ask um, the panelists some very specific questions about business models. I feel like uh, we've had a good discussion about professional standards, about the transition period, but if each panelist could say very specifically in the transition, which business model innovation that they think is going to uh, stanch the bleeding, basically, of talent out of not just newspaper companies, but any news organization. Which business model innovation is going to help uh, keep these journalists from leaving and never coming back? Because I think that really is the major problem. And if Phil could specifically address the San Francisco Chronicle, <laughs> um, because I think a lot of people in the room are probably very interested about that as well. But, but also why um, there's been no public articulation from Hearst um, about what the Chronicle's plan is to, to save itself, basically, or a conversation with the newsroom itself. Do you want to do briefly and then Steve it seems like a, a question for Phil. <laughs> <laughs> briefly. Uh, I, I think the current San Francisco Chronicle is not a successful business model. That's pretty obvious. Uh, I think that I mean, we, I'll tell you what we all know, which is that Hearst, and I, I don't run Hearst, so I can't sort of speak with great authority for Hearst, but what Hearst has said is it's not a viable business model, and we need, at a minimum, all these concessions, of which you're very well aware. And if we get those, you know, maybe there's a possibility that we may stay open. That's pretty much what's been said. I mean, I don't know if anyone's put it that bluntly in the newsroom, because I'm no longer in the newsroom. But... Then the issue is, okay, what about revenue? Where's your revenue going to come from? Because any business model that you have has to be based on some amount of revenue. And the reality is, is that the revenue at the Chronicle, the revenue at the New York Times, the revenue at the Washington Post, isn't enough to sustain the operations we currently have. So what is the business plan? I mean, I think the plan right now, and again, I'm, I'm neither am I publisher of the Chronicle, so I'm probably the wrong guy to articulate this, is to see if you can reach a point where your costs are low enough and your revenue is high enough. Right now, that revenue is being pushed to the circulation side. So the circulation prices are going up, and you may have less circulation, and maybe that will end up costing you less also. But where it used to be 80-20, 
or 75-25 in favor of advertising revenue, you know, the, the, mo the move is towards circulation revenue. And I, don't, I can't sit here and tell you honestly that I think that's necessarily going to work, but that's where it's going. Um, Gentlemen, we have a question yes. in the center here. Hi, my name is Max, and I have a perfect follow-up to that. I wanted to make reference to a couple of business models which are circulating now. Uh, I'd love to get the panel's feedback on uh, Stephen Brill's Journalism Online, if any of you are familiar with that. And also, um, uh, a devoted actor of the Fourth Estate C-SPAN, uh, that uh, hearing you were ref referring to earlier, anybody here can go watch online. And so, some sort of model where... Subsidized by the cable subsidized, industry. Subsidized, yeah. So, sure. if something like well, that... Steve, Steve Brills, for those who, who don't know, it's a journalism online LLC. It's the, the idea is that he would serve as this uh, uh, vendor that all the newspaper companies would come to and cloister their information, essentially, requiring people to pay some sort of fee, whether by article or subscription, hasn't been hashed out, each paper could do it differently. Uh, but the idea would be, hey, papers are no longer giving away stuff online. Uh, for free, although as Mike Kinsley has suggested, in a sense they were in print as well. Uh, Steve Call, why don't you take a crack at that? Well, I leave the venture capitalism to the venture capitalists. I, I don't really uh, have um, an answer to the question about Brill's business model. I'm skeptical about the, the um, proposition of paying for content in this, in this context. But I do think in the second uh, idea that you mentioned, there's something important in, in my view, which is if you were to say, what are the por portfolio of policies and market uh, innovations that can get us best from here to there, preserving the values and the reporting we've talked about earlier? Of course, you just emphasize innovation and private investment and experimentation. And you'd also emphasize MinPost and Voice of San Diego and small uh, nonprofit seedlings that could grow. And uh, you would expect that in the end, private investment will rule the day and take us into the next era of journalism. However, uh, the citizen in me uh, also wants to observe that we already have a national infra infrastructure for public broadcasting. And that national infrastructure is very important in this transition and ought to be revitalized and reinvented. And I think that, a, that there is the potential for um, that in a, in a creative way. And it may be that the funding comes from uh, user fees for licensed scarce spectrum that is allocated to private interest in the context of the public interest. It is entirely, it is a matter of federal law that in the licensing of scarce spectrum to private interest, the public interest should also be considered. And you could define that public interest by modest user fees from those who get to profit from the scarce spectrum, reinvested into this national infrastructure that already exists in order to promote these values that at least me <laughs> thinks are uh, important. So I think we have time for two more questions. Uh, gentlemen. Straight down the middle. <laughs> My name is uh, Paul Schindler. I'm a veteran of uh, several dead journalism organizations. Uh, the Oregon Journal, uh, the late afternoon daily of Portland, uh, UPI, which doesn't exist really as a wire service anymore, a bunch of trade publications. But I happen to have been uh, doing some historical reading lately. And I wonder if anybody on the panel, I don't know if any of you go back far enough to remember five news, I don't, five newspapers in San Francisco, five in Los Angeles, a dozen in New York City, you'd have to go back to the 30s for that. But we survived the collapse of competitive newspaper journalism in America. Is this worse? 
I, th I think that's a very that's a very interesting point. And in fact, one of the changes that has sort of swept the newspaper industry, which people haven't focused on as a result of the internet, is competition once more, because every English-speaking newspaper now competes with every other English-language newspaper, whereas it used to be they were basically um, dozens of separate monopolies in this country, in, 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 in different cities. And that's part of their problem, but it also, I think, suggests somewhere in there a solution, because you could really support um, uh, five or six national newspapers with, uh, with, uh, with bureaus around the world and all the fixings, conceivably. One more question, I believe. Yes. I'm just curious about the panel's opinion on um, the value of journalism programs right now. What would you tell a young person saying, should I go to journalism school? A perennial and impossible question, I, I might add. It's your friend, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, yes, no? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, the UC Berkeley Grad School of Journalism, which today just uh, re renamed Neil Henry as dean, which is a great thing, um, they have a night, a night grant and they have established seven micro-local news sites around the Bay Area, one of them being in the Mission District of San Francisco. And we have, we are starting a local news initiative, a little too late, at the SF Gate, which is the Chronicle website, and plugging them in. And now, whether we'll be able to pay you if you're one of those people who's doing it, <laughs> is something, you know, we'll have to see. But I think that I can tell you, having been over there and having been to the, some of these neighborhoods where they have storefronts that, they are as excited as I was when I got into journalism, and uh, I was not sure what my future would be then. So I, I think the an my answer would be yes. So let's take a moment to thank each of our panelists, Michael Kinsley, Phil Bronstein, Stephen Call, uh, for joining us. Sokolo Public Square, New America Foundation. I'm Dave Folkenflick of NPR News. Uh, thank you very much and good night. Uh,